You are listening to Veterinary Mental Health, Turning the Stethoscope Around, Episode 16, presented by Thoughtful Life Counseling. Welcome to the podcast. I am Taylor Miller, a veterinarian and a licensed professional counseling intern. Mental health and work-life balance are critical issues for veterinary professionals. While not intended as a substitute for individual counseling, this podcast seeks to address many of the mental health concerns common to members of our profession. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we will be discussing anxiety. And just like a fever, most people understand what anxiety is, they know how it makes them feel. But also like a fever, understanding how a fever makes you feel is very different from understanding its purpose in your body and when it is helpful and when it is harmful. So today we will be looking at anxiety more from a neurobiological standpoint as well as implications for how to approach management of an anxiety disorder or management of everyday type of anxiety. And that is one of the first things I want to talk about, because anxiety, like so many things, exists on a spectrum. There is the everyday version of anxiety or worry, which varies from a mild annoyance to distressing but not debilitating. In some respects, this is adaptive type behavior. Worry allows us to anticipate difficulties and it gives us a chance to be apprehensive ahead of time, which also gives us a chance to solve problems ahead of time or to come up with a plan to avoid problems. If we were never apprehensive or we never worried or looked forward with a critical eye, we would be blindsided by many problems that are avoidable. Anxiety also helps us to avoid potentially dangerous or uncomfortable situations. The tricky part is when that anxiety and worry tips over the midline of being helpful and adaptive into being disruptive or distressing. On the far end of the spectrum is generalized anxiety disorder, which is diagnosed if the following conditions are met. An individual must experience excessive anxiety and worry occurring more days than not for at least six months about a number of different events or activities or or domains, life domains, such as work or school performance. It is characterized as being difficult to control and results in at least three of the following, being restless or on edge, being easily fatigued, having difficulty concentrating or experiencing that sensation where your mind just goes blank, feeling irritable, excessive muscle tension, or sleep disturbances. I list these out not so that you can decide whether or not you have a diagnosable anxiety disorder, but to give you a sense of the components that we look at as mental health professionals when we are discussing anxiety. And even if you don't technically meet these criteria for generalized anxiety disorder doesn't mean you aren't experiencing anxiety to a degree that is distressing for you. And that's why I talk about this continuum. Wherever you're at on this continuum, if your anxiety is distressing to you, then it is worth addressing. But in order to address it, it's best to know what exactly is going on. So we will be discussing three different structures in the brain the cortex, the amygdala, and the thalamus. So the cortex is our rational powerhouse. It allows us to synthesize information in a way that is uniquely human. For the purposes of our discussion today, the thalamus directs sensory traffic to both our cortex and our amygdala. 
the amygdala's job is to attach emotional significance to stimuli. So it is the structure that gives us a knee-jerk reaction to a smell, a song. It lets us know to duck if something is flying at our heads even before we have registered the fact that something is flying at our heads. And it also allows us to store memories as emotional memories, meaning that they have an emotional tone or emotional flavor to them as we record them. And sometimes that tone or emotion is very strong, as in fear or love. And having that emotional tone to a memory means that when we encounter similar situations, we have that visceral or emotional response to the stimulation before we've had a chance to truly access the old memory that may have triggered this sensation or this response. And while the amygdala does record or does initiate both positive and negative sensations or emotional memories, since we are talking about anxiety today, we will be focusing on the ways in which it contributes to our anxious interpretations of events or stimuli. When you are experiencing anxiety, it has occurred in one of two ways, and these are described as the bottom-up or the top-down pathways. Bottom-up means that sensory information triggers anxiety before we think, such that we are reacting out of instinct. And this occurs when our amygdala responds directly to sensory information fed to it by the thalamus. So your thalamus receives sensory information from the environment, that information travels quickly to the amygdala and you respond. It has not had a chance to be processed yet through the cortex. So this is raw information quickly synthesized by the amygdala and then you are given that feeling of anxiety, fear, dread, pain, discomfort, or some other type of negative response that guides your actions. So an example of this would be doing an exam on a toothless chihuahua. You yourself removed all those teeth two weeks ago. And he turns and makes a bite at your hand. And your hand is five inches, five feet away from that dog before your brain has a chance to remind you that this dog has no teeth. This is also why you levitate six feet back when you're hiking on a trail when you see a stick in the mud that resembles a snake. Your body keeps you safe by moving you out of the way of this potential snake before your brain has a chance to assess and determine one way or the other. With the bottom-up pathway to anxiety, the associations that our brain makes that gives us these responses are not always logical. Say you bought a new shampoo and shampooed your hair the night before you were broken up with, and so that smell was there and strongly present and new enough to catch your notice during that really difficult, painful breakup. It's likely that in future, if that particular shampoo smell comes around, you will find yourself feeling sad, unaccountably sad, or anxious, or depressed because of that association. Never mind, the soap had absolutely nothing to do with the breakup beyond it being sensory stimuli at the time that that emotional memory was being created. So this is one of the ways that anxiety can become a problem. Our brain will form associations or pairings that cause difficulty in our lives because the perceived threat by the amygdala does not correlate to the actual threat in the environment. The other mechanism by which we experience anxiety is top-down or cortex-down. So our interpretation of sensory information leads to anxiety, not the information itself, but our interpretation, which is the job of the cortex. 
So sensory information is received by the thalamus and then interpreted by the cortex, and the cortex then alerts or scares the amygdala, essentially. Think of an innocuous sensory stimuli, say a phone call. We hear phones ring all the time, and it's not a reason for panic or anxiety. But if it's your day off and the caller ID is the clinic, many people will get a surge of anxiety. What if my surgery patient from yesterday is back with complications? What if I'm being called in to cover a shift? What if I have a chart that I missed so it's not done so somebody else has questions? What if, what if, what if? And suddenly, this innocuous sound, a phone ringing, has become a trigger for anxiety, mediated through your cortex and then picked up on by your amygdala. So your cortex freaks out and scares your amygdala. Your amygdala responds by initiating those feelings of anxiety. Another example would be hearing the click of a door closing. Absolutely nothing scary about the sound in and of itself. The sound passes through the thalamus to the amygdala, which says, meh. Then the sound goes to the cortex, and your cortex says, wait, I'm the last one here in the clinic. No one should be opening doors. There shouldn't be anyone else here. That door click could mean that somebody's in here that shouldn't be in here. The amygdala picks up on your interpretation of the stimuli and initiates an anxiety response. And more than likely, it's a coworker who forgot something and everything is completely normal. But your amygdala doesn't know that yet. And it's activated and your sympathetic nervous system has already been brought online. And so you've got your pounding heart and your sweaty palms and you're ready to fight or flee. So this is an example of how top-down anxiety can be triggered by external stimuli. Top-down anxiety also includes ruminations or excessive worry about the future. And again, this acts on a continuum. A little worry or rumination is very common. Excessive worry or worry that prevents you from proceeding or acting that disrupts your life can be a great deal more distressing. Okay. So we have two routes to anxiety, bottom-up or top-down, both of which activate the amygdala. And the amygdala has been given permission by the body to shut down higher function in order to respond to immediate threat. This is why you can't logic your way out of a panic attack, and you can't logic your way out of anxiety when you are currently being activated. And there's a reason for this. If your body had to wait until you decided to avoid being bitten or kicked, you would never be fast enough to get away. So your body has to respond before you have time to think. And thinking can sometimes paralyze you. So it's logical from the body's perspective just to shut down all of these higher brain functions and just allow you to respond on instinct. In situations where the actual danger matches the amygdala's perception of it, this is a very adaptive mechanism. Unfortunately, when we're talking about anxiety, we're usually talking about situations in which the amygdala is overreacting or situations in which our cortex has scared our amygdala into overreacting. In these cases, having the cortex shut down means that logic or rational thought is unable to help you out of that anxiety loop. Other people's attempts to help may also be hindered if they are using words and trying to explain something to you rationally. Yes, what you're saying is rational, but my amygdala doesn't know that. My amygdala is still responding. My amygdala is the frightened child afraid of the dark. And you telling me there aren't any monsters may be true, but it doesn't help. 
So we have to keep this in mind both in order to be gentle with ourselves as well as potentially to help other people who are experiencing anxiety. Telling them the facts may not be as helpful as helping their amygdala calm down or helping them de-escalate their sympathetic nervous system. The beautiful news for anxiety is neuroplasticity. And I'm only going to say that once or twice because I've had to record three times now. And for some reason, it is a tongue twister for me. But neuroplasticity means that we have a chance to rewrite or rewire some of those pairings that our amygdala has made. And we see this all the time in our patients. Say we have a dog who is afraid of bicycles. We don't flood them a la Caesar Milan, but we can expose them ingredients to bicycles in such a fashion that over time, they stop reacting to them. The same principle applies in humans. When our amygdala has paired anxiety with a specific situation or sensory stimuli, And what we need to do in order to rewrite those memories is to initiate that anxiety response in an environment in which there are no negative consequences. So let's take the overweight in heat spay as an example. This is a scenario that most of us have at least some degree of anxiety about or did at some point. And The most deliberate, kindest way to approach the situation is to pair with a senior clinician who is comfortable and do the surgery in tandem, starting with watching the senior clinician, moving on to assisting, and continuing until you are eventually completing the entire spay yourself. From a therapeutic standpoint, this graduated approach should be able to reduce anxiety surrounding spays of this nature. Unfortunately, we rarely get this type of opportunity to rewrite negative associations in the veterinary field. Part of this is due to the culture of veterinary medicine. We are expected to tough it out, get over it, work through it, etc., And while coworkers may truly sympathize, there's rarely enough time in the day or clinician availability to devote the resources to that type of graduated approach that I just described. So this leaves you with what is likely a combination of top-down and bottom-up anxiety. The top-down anxiety in this situation would include worry about potential complications and concern that your skills aren't good enough to either manage those complications or to prevent complications. The bottom-up anxiety will occur when you start associating the sound of the monitoring equipment and the smells of the surgery suite with feelings of stress and anxiety. And of course, at that point, each will feed into the other until your anxiety feels like this perpetual motion machine. The other thing that might occur is extrapolation of your anxiety from large, overweight in heat space to other areas of your surgical repertoire. If the amygdala begins pairing the sensory stimuli of the surgery room with feelings of anxiety, you may begin to experience that bottom-up type of anxiety whenever you step into the surgery suite, regardless of the type of procedure you're performing there. So how do we approach this scenario? Whatever direction it is coming from, top-down or bottom-up, it is the amygdala that is mediating the anxiety response. While a graduated exposure approach, as I described previously, may not be in the cards, you can still use the principles of exposure to begin to rewire your amygdala. 
If management is amenable, see if you can fill your surgery time with simpler procedures, such that you are able to anticipate and experience as many uncomplicated surgeries as possible. As you begin to replace difficult surgery experiences with encouraging ones, your amygdala will begin to pair the sounds and smells and experiences of the surgery suite with these new emotional experiences, these positive ones. And as you become more comfortable, you can begin to add larger and larger dogs and more complicated procedures until you've reached a caseload that will work with your clinical environment. This type of approach will obviously take the cooperation of your scheduling staff as well as your colleagues who will be handling the cases you're not yet ready for. However, if your approach is presented as a graduated learning experience rather than as an avoidance strategy with no endpoint, my hope is that you would be able to find support. And if you are listening to this podcast as a more confident surgeon or as someone with management responsibilities, consider whether there is anyone in your clinic who could benefit from this type of approach. Surgery scenario aside, consider whether there are any situations in your life that consistently provoke anxiety. Today's handout will walk you through the steps of creating a personalized exposure gradient for an anxiety-provoking area in your life. I do want to add a caveat here that rewiring can only occur when you are actively experiencing anxiety. A graduated approach is meant to keep your anxiety at a tolerable level, but even so, it can be decidedly unpleasant. Finding a mental health professional who can support you through exposure therapy can be hugely helpful if you're dealing with something that's really difficult. If you are looking for lasting change in a particular anxiety-provoking area in your life, exposure therapy is the only way to rewire the amygdala. However, there are a number of ways in which we can manage the reactivity of the amygdala to reduce anxiety in any given moment or to reduce our overall anxiety set point. And these strategies can be particularly helpful if you experience anxiety more as a constant diffuse hum in your life rather than as a response to a particular situation or thought. The first strategy is diaphragmatic breathing or deep breaths, deep, slow breaths. This kind of breathing helps by counteracting the physical sensations of anxiety that are brought on by increased sympathetic tone. Same thing with muscle relaxation. Muscles are tense when you're anxious and tense with sympathetic tone, so if you deliberately and progressively relax your muscles, your body will assume the danger is over and parasympathetic tone will increase. Or, on the opposite side, you can engage in aerobic exercise or an aerobic outlet. This allows the body to feel as though it has completed the circuit by responding to the alarm. When the amygdala responds to a perceived threat with anxiety, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, and sometimes the degree of activation means that you are in a fight-or-flight mode. And aerobic exercise allows your body to feel as though flight or fight has been accomplished. And if fight or flight have been accomplished, then it is okay to calm down, it is okay for parasympathetic tone to return. So running for 20 minutes, jumping jacks, something that allows you to expend that energy that your body has prepared for you in order to get away or to fight whatever threat you're up against. And then the final thing that can help in the moment is yoga. Yoga combines muscle relaxation, diaphragmatic breathing, and sometimes aerobic exercise, depending on the type of yoga that you engage in. So these are strategies for that moment when you are currently activated. You are feeling anxious. 
Diaphragmatic breathing, muscle relaxation, aerobic exercise, and yoga are all good options for helping you feel better in the moment. And then the other category that we want to look at is how to reduce the overall tone of your amygdala such that your set point for anxiety is reduced or your reactivity is reduced. And the things that help this the most are quality REM sleep and regular exercise. Yoga, again, is included in this exercise category. So if you are feeling anxious or activated on a routine basis, one of the very first things to do is make sure that you are getting quality sleep and engage in 20 minutes of exercise on a daily basis. And I understand that sleep can be difficult, particularly because with anxiety, we often see a compromise in our ability to go to sleep or our ability to stay asleep. I will be covering sleep hygiene, which should help when I have my sleep podcast. I realize that I have been promising it or or threatening it, whichever way you want to look at it, for some time now, and I will get there, but I want to do it justice, so I'm gathering my resources before I spring it on you. The other podcast that I will share with you at some future date is how to manage your thoughts such that we can reduce top-down anxiety. But that is an entire topic within itself, and we are already out of time. I want to credit Dr. Catherine Pittman as my source for the information today. I attended one of her trainings and was very impressed by her presentation. She has also written a book with Elizabeth Carl called Rewire Your Anxious Brain. I have not yet read it myself, but it is on my long list of two reads, and when I do finally read it, I will give you a review on my website. And if one of you reads it first, please let me know. I would be interested to hear your impressions of it. And that wraps us up for today. I look forward to talking to you next week. We'll be covering one of my favorite topics, time management. It's also one of my Achilles heels, so we will have some fun with it. Until then, please take care of yourself and be well. This has been a mental health moment brought to you by Thoughtful Life Counseling. If you found today's episode helpful, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving me a review. You can download the handout mentioned in today's episode by visiting my website at thoughtfullifecounseling.com. To have the handouts delivered by email, please sign up to receive my twice-monthly newsletter. If you have topic requests, questions or comments, please contact me through my website or any one of my social media platforms. Take care of yourself and tune in next week for time management.